This is Interviews, a podcast from the National Academy of Sciences that provides first-person accounts of the lives and work of Academy members. In this series of one-on-one conversations, scientists talk about what inspired them to pursue the careers they chose and describe some of the most fascinating aspects of their research. As the daughter of a biochemist, Rowena Matthews met more than her share of scientists, but she never thought she could become one because most of them were men. It wasn't until college that Matthews discovered her own passion for biochemistry and the possibility of juggling cutting-edge research with motherhood and a rich family life. Throughout her career, Matthews has explored how enzymes work within the body. Her studies have revealed the surprising and complex reactions that enzymes and vitamins can set in motion, including some that play prominent roles in human health. Rowena Matthews is a professor emeritus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She was elected to the National Academy of Sciences in 2002. I'm Rowena Matthews. I'm a professor emeritus of biochemistry at the University of Michigan and I was elected to the National Academy in 2002. I was born in Cambridge, England. My father was a university professor and we were then an itinerant family. So we moved from Cambridge, England to Boston uh, where he, because he was an American citizen and British were at war, America was not, so he had to leave. And then we went from Boston to New York And when I was 10, we moved to Madison, Wisconsin, which is where I really remember growing up. We lived near the lake, near Lake Mendota, about probably five miles from campus. And it it was very different than living in the cities, and I absolutely loved it. Um, It's it's a beautiful environment. There are lakes all around. Uh, The university is very attractive. And I went to the university high school. And my family remained throughout there, my father and mother's lives, in Madison. What did your parents do? Well, my father was also a biochemist. My mother was a theatrical costumer, and she actually did the costumes for the University of Wisconsin for their theater program after we had left home. And uh, so they had very different lives and, and, are, and were very different people. Um, My father was very interested in science and talked a lot about it, and he brought many of his friends home for dinner. So as a young girl, I met all kinds of scientists from all over the world, and I enjoyed that very much. I didn't actually decide to be a scientist at that point, because almost all the scientists I met were men. Or if I met an occasional woman who was a scientist, she led a very different life than I thought I wanted to. I, I wanted to marry and have children as well as having a career, and there just weren't the role models. But I certainly engaged with science and thought that it was fascinating and enjoyed it. And I loved the fact that there were a community of friends from all over the world who talked with one another, a feature that I think is still wonderful about careers in academic science. So what did you think that you wanted to do at that time? In your well, I went to college thinking I wanted to major in Russian and government, and then didn't like my first course in government at all, and took a biology course from George Wald, who's a very dynamic lecturer, himself later a Nobel laureate, but he used to teach a 
course in biochemistry that was exhilarating. And it, it was a time when biochemistry was making incredible strides. DNA structure had been discovered. People were beginning to understand how proteins were made, what the rules were to get from DNA to proteins to cells. So it was a time that was incredibly exciting, and I just got hooked, decided that this was for me. And I, then when uh, I finished college, my husband was in medical school, and we were poor as church mice when we got married. So I worked for George Wald for three years in his laboratory, which was an amazing experience, because that was when I really began to do research rather than learning science and I was I just loved it. It was the discovery voyage that I think it's as addicting as drugs. And I had lots of time. My husband was never home. I could work on experiments day and night. <laughs> and it, I just I just got thrilled. That was the turning point. And that was when I decided that you couldn't actually become a scientist without getting a degree. So then I had to stop doing research and go to graduate school. But I made that decision at that point. Well, I should mention one other thing. His wife, Ruth Hubbard, also worked in the laboratory. She was a phenomenal scientist. She was the role model, I think, that I needed because she was married, she had a child, and she was a great scientist. And it was an example for me that, that, could, that you could have that kind of a life. And I really, I really was enormously impressed by that. And in fact, my first paper that I published in Wald's lab Ruth is also a co-author and made some very substantial contributions to it. So then what happened when you decided that you did want to pursue this? So I started in grad... Well, my husband then took an internship at the University of Michigan. We moved to Ann Arbor. I started graduate school, and I decided to work with Vincent Massey, who worked in a very different area, but was uh, an enzymologist, a biochemist. But my husband was uh, drafted. And so we were sent to South Carolina, where I had my first child. <laughs> and I, I wrote a bold note to the head of the biochemistry department at the University of South Carolina, explaining that I was arriving unexpectedly in South Carolina, and that I was, at that time, eight months pregnant. <laughs> and did they need anyone to help teach? And he wrote by return mail that I could have a job. <laughs> so I had a job as a lecturer for that year. And then he was, my husband was sent to Vietnam, and I went with my one-year-old back to graduate school at Michigan and experienced being a single parent with a young child while being a graduate student, which actually worked surprisingly well because he was okay, and we made it through. <laughs> and, and then I finished graduate school as he took his residency. That had to be really difficult. I mean, you're in graduate school, you have a child, your husband's at war, so you don't know what's going to happen. To yes, so that, the, the latter part's the most stressful part. The Army helps you in quite a few ways. You know, they give you access to, you know, exchanges where you can buy things, and, and they do what they can, they give you an allowance. But it was a difficult year. I think being in graduate school helped because I cared about that. And... I had a relatively young child who slept a lot. So when I did get home, we had some time together, and then I would have evenings when I could. I was still in the study phase of graduate school, so I had to pass my, my comprehensive exams that year. And that was maybe not so bad, because there were a few distractions in the evening. 
And often uh, my fellow graduate students would come to my house to study because it was quiet and I couldn't leave. So they were very obliging and they would come in a group of two or three and we would all study together. And then um, when your husband returned, mm -hmm. what was that transition like? So all of a sudden he was back, I'm assuming he was okay and nothing happened. He was okay and he was amazingly okay in the sense that he wasn't shell-shocked. He, he had served as a doctor and that was not something that was disturbing for him. Uh, it, 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 the transition was amazingly seam, seamless, and we were very lucky about that. Uh, I've heard the children reject their father when he's gone for a year, and that was simply not the case. He walked through the door, and my son, who couldn't talk at that stage, stood up and held out his arms. And I didn't know how he could remember that this was his dad, but somehow he seemed to know. So it, it, it worked very well. I mean, he had to adjust to being at home with a one-year-old. <laughs> or now, actually, a two-year-old at that point, a two-year-old. So that was a little different than what he'd left at one, but everything worked very well. And, and graduate school was a little easier after that. Uh, but when you're married to an orthopedic surgeon resident, you're going to take up most of the slack. I mean, with the best will in the world, he was on call every other night and many times didn't get home. So I learned to be very efficient. I learned to plan my experiments, get in at nine, do my experiments, take the data home, and work it up after after Brian went to, went to bed. <laughs> uh, so what happened next? We spent a year in Sweden. We... Uh, I had planned on doing a postdoctoral fellowship, and he had planned on doing a special fellowship from NIH to study biomechanics. And what I didn't know was I was pregnant again, that in Sweden you have a nine-month maternity leave, and there are no facilities for childcare for a child who's under nine months old. So that plan wasn't going to work. It's the one year in my life that I didn't work, and it was very ironic because I faced a lot of disapproval for going on and having a graduate degree when I was married to a doctor and had one child and the second on the way. In America at that time, there were a lot of people frowned on that, thought that I didn't need to work and why would I do it? I was pretty stubborn about it. And then I went to Sweden where women all work. And I was that awful thing, a hemifru, a woman who doesn't work but stays at home. So you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But I, again, we were in an academic community. We were at the Vinogrand Center. There were a lot of scientists around. I didn't feel I completely lost touch with science. And uh, when, I, when I returned, I returned to a postdoc at the University of Michigan. I, was, I had a very supportive postdoctoral mentor who arranged for me to teach in the medical biochemistry course as a postdoc on his time. So he was really paying my salary. And that's actually where I encountered the science that I ended up doing for the rest of my career. So I was teaching about one carbon metabolism, how enzymes move a single carbon unit in various oxidation states from A to B. And these are pathways that are rate-limiting for rapid growth of cells, they're very important targets for cancer chemotherapy, and they also are very needed for regeneration of the epithelium of the gut and for the production of red cells. 
So these are very important medical targets. And I began to realize that a couple of those enzymes had been very well studied. Dihydrofolate reductase methotrexate is the target that inhibits uh, dihydrofolate reductase. It's used widely in cancer chemotherapy to this day. Thymidylate synthase, another of these enzymes that does a one-carbon transfer. Thymidylate synthase is the target of 5-fluorouracil, which was one of the early cancer chemotherapeutic drugs. But there were a whole bunch of these enzymes that were very poorly studied, and it intrigued me. I thought they must have very interesting chemistry and would be a good topic for a junior faculty member. And it's, those are the enzymes I began to study. When you, uh, when you metabolize food, you oxidize it. That is to say, you generate energy from it by abstracting hydrogens and passing them to something else. And a vital role for these flavins is to participate in that and to make those hydrogen transfers faster so that you can oxidize your food in an efficient way and generate energy. So they were very critical for these pathways by which we get extract energy from the food we eat. Now what was fascinating to me is the enzymes in one carbon metabolism have a folate cofactor that looks like a truncated version of a flavin. It's got two rings instead of three. I thought, this should be a redox cofactor. I know this chemistry. But the enzymes were, many of them, not doing anything that involved hydrogen abstraction or electron transfer. So why do you have these unstable, active cofactors doing something totally different than what the flavins did? So that was, that was what got me into this field, and that was something I explored. And it turned out that most of these reactions do not involve redox chemistry. They're really using these cofactors in very different ways. What we were able to show is many of these, these folate cofactors actually serve as intermediates. If you're going to transfer a methyl group, that's a CH3, it's one carbon, from one thing to another, you do it by way of the cofactor. So you have A with a methyl group, then you have folate with a methyl group, and then you have B with a methyl group. You, you have to ask why you bother, you know, why do you do this indirect thing? It turns out that that transfer is easier than the transfer from A to B, and as a result, faster. So instead of going over a big hill to get from A to B, you go over two smaller hills, and this is fast. So what we were able to show is there weren't hydrogens coming and going in most of these reactions, but there was a facilitated methyl transfer. So you're exploring how the how riboflavin and folate are working in the body. Mm -hmm. And when people think about those, they typically think about, well, oh yeah, people take folate when they're going to have babies, and yes. you know, they, they work in the body in certain ways. So what's the connection between what you were finding and health? I, I'll, I'll tell a little bit of a story here. We often go to meetings as scientists, to present our work, to hear the work of others, to let our graduate students present their work. Very typically, some of those meetings are highly, highly focused and relatively small, or they're huge and not very focused at all. But the Federation of American Society for Experimental Biology 
had a series of very special meetings called Summer Research Meetings, where they brought together for a very focused topic a huge variety of people from different fields. So there would be epidemiologists and anesthesiologists and people who worked on cancer and enzymologists like me. And at those meetings, I began to hear more and more about the medical aspects of these folate-dependent enzymes. And one of the big issues of, say, the 1980s was the idea that homocysteine levels that were elevated were very bad and might be a risk for cardiovascular disease. I had an enzyme that I was studying that converts homocysteine to methionine, which is an amino acid and part of our dietary requirements. So I obviously had an enzyme that was involved in regulation of the level of homocysteine in humans. And listening to all these people, I began to realize that we needed to know why it was it was discovered, and partly I, I'm a co-author on one of these papers, that there was a very common mutation, a change in the enzyme I was studying, methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, that clearly led to elevated homocysteine levels in humans. And I thought, I can see the data, the epidemiology that says that this is true. I want to understand what's wrong. What did that mutation do? So we set about trying to understand what that mutation did to make the homocysteine level in humans higher. And we were able to show, flavins come back again and again, we were able to show that what happens when you have this mutation is that your flavin cofactor isn't bound as tightly as it should be, isn't embraced as tightly by the protein, and it gets away. And then the enzyme's dead. And so, A, it was one of the first times that people had actually gone to the enzyme to say, why is there a correlation between homocysteine levels in humans and a given mutation? We actually got an x-ray structure, got all kinds of information about this. But we were also able to say something very important, which is, if you're riboflavin deficient, your homocysteine level will also go up. And indeed, that proved to be the case. Now, science isn't always perfect, because one of the things we came to realize over the course of a decade was that although it's true that homocysteine levels go up with this mutation, taking them back down by taking folic acid has not protected against heart disease. We don't understand why. And of course, this isn't my work, but I had to realize that it isn't always the case that simply reversing something that you know isn't right will lead to a more favorable outcome. What's the work that you're proudest of? It's rather esoteric, but the second enzyme in the pathway to regenerate methionine in humans is even more complicated than the flavin-containing enzyme. It's one of two enzymes in the body that uses vitamin B12 and in, in, in mammals, in humans. And again, an enzyme that had been studied, but about which very little was understood. And that enzyme transfers the methyl group from A to B. A is homocysteine, B is methionine. So it regenerates methionine from homocysteine. 
And there, the chemistry is fascinating. Here you have an enzyme that has to deal with A, homocysteine, and the donor, the methyl donor, methyl tetrahydrofolate, that's the folate cofactor, and it has to transfer that methyl group. But it doesn't transfer it directly. I talked about the two hills and going from A to B. The valley in the middle is actually methyl B12. So you transfer the methyl group to B12, and then you transfer it to homocysteine. So the enzyme has to react with methyl tetrahydrofolate and with homocysteine and with a regulator that's C, neither of them. And each of these has a separate binding site on the enzyme. So the question there for me is, how does the enzyme know where it is in the reaction? How does it know that it has a methyl group or it doesn't have a methyl group? And therefore that it should react either with methyl tetrahydrofolate because it needs a methyl group or with homocysteine because it wants to get rid of that methyl group. Does it just flop around until the right two things come together? That didn't seem very likely. It's, it, it actually catalyzes a reaction at 50 complete methyl transfers per second. So what is it that constrains it so that it doesn't search around? That turned out to be a fascinating research enterprise. It involved a lot of structural biology. I've had a long-term collaboration with an x-ray crystallographer. Her name was Martha Ludwig, and she also was elected to the National Academy. And together, in a real partnership, we explored this question. And the truth is revealed gradually, like the layers of an onion. And suddenly, you begin to understand how this enzyme knows where it is. Along the way, we, we obtained the first x-ray structure of any enzyme that had B12 bound to it. And it turned out to be a very surprising structure. And what we learned is that the protein is actually bonded to the cobalt of vitamin B12. Nobody expected that. But that turned out to be critical to how the enzyme knows where it is. When it has a methyl group on top, that bond to the protein is weak. When it has, or sorry, is strong. When it has no methyl group on top, that bond weakens. And the protein moves away from the B12. And it's like pulling the strings on a puppet. It can go places and move to different forms, different conformations, when that bond is broken than when that bond is strong. And so it's chemically sensing where it is in the reaction, and that is in turn allowing it to assume the right juxtaposition, A versus the uh, unmethylated form of the B12, or B versus the methylated form. And for me, that was an incredibly satisfying and exciting enterprise. Uh, it took over a decade's work. Why is it so important to understand all of these little reactions along the way? Very good question. Um, it's very important because these are important for human health. It's almost certain that methionine synthase deficiency or vitamin B12 deficiency, that the symptoms of vitamin B12 deficiency relate directly to its effect on methionine synthase. There are only two B12-dependent enzymes. This seems to be the one that's related to the pernicious anemia, which is associated with vitamin B12 deficiency. So you want to understand 
how the enzyme works if you want to target it in any way for therapies. If you want to design a drug to enhance or decrease the activity of an enzyme, you have to understand how it works. It also turned out to be very important for a reason I couldn't possibly have foreseen when I began to study methionine synthase. There are only two B12-dependent enzymes in humans, but there are many B12 enzymes in lower organisms, in the bacteria, and even more so in a whole kingdom of life that was undiscovered when I began my career, the archaebacteria. It turns out the archaebacteria play major roles in the marine environment, in lakes. They're very important for generating methane, and they get their energy from methanogenesis, from generating methane. So they're tremendously important organisms that we didn't know anything about. And it turns out that methionine synthase, which has four parts that are in part there to bind the B12 molecule C, molecule A, and molecule B. Those parts do the basic one-carbon chemistry in methanogenesis. Methane is a one-carbon unit. So there's a whole marine and lake biology that's terribly important that spoke directly to the kinds of things we were studying. And again, it was another meeting where I was invited to give a talk at the American Society for Microbiology. And I met for the first time all these people who were working on enzymes that turned out to be incredibly similar as the parts of what I was looking at. And so all of a sudden there's a dialogue that I couldn't have anticipated at all. And one that I think we informed one another. As one of us found something, we could see how it worked in their system and and map it over to our own. And it was curious that methionine synthase became a prototype for understanding a lot of these one carbon transfers. And I was really thrilled about that. Clearly this is something that a lot of academics struggle with and that you've done to a remarkable extent because your husband's a doctor. How do you juggle your career and motherhood and your family life? My husband once leaned across the dinner table and said, Rowena, We need a wife. (laughs) And it's true that it is a juggling act. I think you have to be lucky in part, and you have to be smart. It really helps if you marry somebody who's glad to be a true partner. And I was very fortunate. You know, orthopedic surgeons aren't noted for their ability to spend a lot of time with children, but my husband spent as much time with the children as I did. And when I was bucking as an assistant professor... He would manage to get himself free and show up for a PTO meeting, something like that, so that I wasn't just in it myself. We were lucky in the sense that both our children were very healthy and pretty good-natured, so that we had, if you like, children who were pretty easy and pretty well adapted, and that helps tremendously. And that's, of course, something you have no control over. I think you have to have a sense of humor. You have to roll with the punches occasionally. And you have to be well-organized. My husband's a time fascist, so well-organized is part of our lives. (laughs) What advice would you give to a young person interested in a career in science? Do it. And feel that you can have a career and a family. And now, of course, there are many, many more role models out there. This is much more common than it was when I was an assistant professor in the... 1980s. 
I think it's much easier to to envision such a career. And make some compromises. You might not want to choose the most highly competitive, fought-over area of science to get into because you will have limitations in the amount of time that you can put in. So you might want to choose a path less trodden, and that can be equally exciting and equally productive, but you won't be frightened every time you open nature that you're going to be scooped, which I think is something very difficult. Since 1863, the nation's top scientists have been honored with membership in the National Academy of Sciences. Today, there are more than 2,500 in the NAS membership, of whom approximately 200 have won Nobel Prizes. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Interviews and invite you to join us again for another inspiring conversation.